As you know, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce the Plus CBD Relief line of soft gels. Plus CBD Relief is the ideal way to help promote a healthy inflammatory response. Plus CBD Relief is doctor-formulated with recovery-supporting ingredients, including CBD, CBDA, and Levagen plus PEA. Relief soft gels help address minor everyday soreness, support joint function, and encourage recovery following strenuous activity. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. And with a 90-day satisfaction guarantee, you have nothing to lose. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com Hoffman and use coupon code Hoffman30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's Relief Soft Gels. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a very, very important book. It's about medical error. You know, we get on a plane, we uh, generally think chances are pretty good that we're going to arrive at our destination. But when we go into a hospital or we undergo a medical procedure, well, uh, sometimes you pay your money and you're taking your chances. And there's a wonderful book on this subject by um, uh, a repeat guest. Uh, we interviewed her in the past about her great book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear. She's Daniel Ofri, MD. Uh, she's a frequent contributor to the New York Times Health section. She's a Bellevue-trained physician, and she now serves as an attending physician there teaching doctors uh, and seeing patients. Uh, interestingly, she is uh, also the founder of something called the Bellevue Literary Review, uh, which is a wonderful source of uh, writings about medicine and uh, journaling and writing. I think an important part of the way that doctors keep saying, I know it works for me, uh, it certainly has become an avocation for Dr. Ofri. So, uh, Danielle, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. Yeah, congratulations on the book. Uh, but there's some startling statistics in it. And, you know, I recall, oh, I guess it was in the, in the 90s when uh, the, the papers came out with this astounding headline that according to a study, uh, the number of patients afflicted by medical errors, killed by medical errors, uh, it equals the toll of having a loaded jumbo jet crash every single day of the year, 365, the third leading cause of death behind, I guess, uh, heart disease and cancer. So um, uh, talk to us about the, the scale of this. And is, is, that a, is that an overestimate? Well, for, for starters, it's very hard to estimate, A, when there is a medical error, and B, when a medical error causes death. So that study, which got a lot of headlines, was actually not a primary study where they went, you know, into medical records and reviewed every case. This was a study that reanalyzed four earlier studies, and that's not unkosher, but one has to realize that it uh, is taking previously analyzed data and using other people's assumptions of what an error was and whether it caused death. So that's point one that we don't actually know. Um, 
it's most likely not the third leading cause of death, but it's certainly not small. And, and you know, it could be distorted by the possibility that people with very challenging medical conditions go into hospitals all the time. And, you know, the outcome is poor. They die uh, or they come to harm. Uh, but that's part of the equation of being seriously ill. And, and, you know, and sure, if you, t- if you take a patient who's dying of cirrhosis and they're given the wrong antibiotic, that's an error. And they also die. But did the error cause the death? It can be very, very difficult to figure that out. So the, the numbers are hard to measure. It doesn't make it any less of a serious problem. It just points out how difficult it is to study the field in a way that gives you accurate data. So give us some examples of a medical error. In the book, you know, you detail uh, and chronicle uh, several medical errors you know usually it's not one discrete thing it's sort of like that slippery slide towards uh you know making the wrong judgment sometimes under duress well there's several categories of errors so so the one that's most easy to understand are are straightforward procedural errors you know the doctor amputated the wrong foot right that's pretty straightforward um operated on the wrong side gave the wrong medicine um those do happen there are fewer because we use we now use checklists for many of these straightforward procedures. Then there are other errors that come in the realm of diagnosis. Speaking of checklists, I got to tell you, um, you know, I went, I had to go to the hospital a couple of times last year because I had uh, minor surgery on my knee, and I had uh, minor surgery on one of my eyes. And I can't tell you the number of times that they came up to me. They say, Ronald, what eye are we operating on today? And then another person came in and said, Ronald, what eye are we operating on? Or, you know, what knee are we operating? And it's just like, whoa, I'm getting Uh, tired of answering the same question again. But it was like, you got to make sure. Right. But it would be much worse if you had the wrong eye operated on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so those those type of things are very amenable to checklists, and I think they've been instrumental in helping bring down the the rate of errors for those kind of things. So those are are, are you know inexcusable errors to operate on the wrong eye or the wrong knee, you know. Um, but then what about errors of misdiagnosis or uh, incorrect or delayed diagnosis? That's very hard to apply a checklist to because that's how we think. But we believe there's a lot of error. Again, it's hard to measure, but. Uh, the studies that I've tried have shown that there's quite a bit of missed and delayed diagnoses, and these, of course, can cause a lot of harm. Uh, things can be missed. Um, missed cancers clearly cause a lot of harm and, of course, a lot of distress for the patient, and they cost a lot of money because we're constantly, you know, chasing our, our tail. There's that kind of error. And then there are things that fall in between the kind of the judgment call errors that is it an error or was it just, you know, the way you were thinking that maybe that wasn't done as well as it could have? And uh, as you mentioned, you know, there are a lot of errors that happen we call, call near misses, right? An error happened. You got the wrong dose, but it didn't cause any harm. Uh, but that's still an error. But it often takes many errors for a disaster to happen. Because usually one small error will be caught, will be corrected. Mm-hmm. But when you hear these tragic outcomes that, you know, make the headlines, it's often a combination of errors. And probably the, the unifying factor is communication, um, and so when I set out to write When We Do Harm, the book about medical error, I almost felt like I was writing what patients say, what doctors hear all over again, because nearly every error, uh, every major error can be traced to some kind of communication issue, uh, either between doctors and nurses on the medical team or between doctors and patients. 
Mm-hmm. We folks, can you we can hear we're in New York City because you hear the uh, ambulances in the background. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, there are fewer ambulances now than there were uh, a few months ago, and they yes. just seem to be incessant, right? You know, they're just and uh, every time you heard an approaching ambulance, uh, probably your pulse quickened a little bit there at uh, Bellevue because there were a lot of bodies coming in there. Um, okay, so uh, there, there's. This issue of checklists and you, you know, you analogize this to the aviation industry where they now have very elaborate checklists. You know, it, it, it pilots have to go through a whole routine, uh, you know, check the rudder, check the ailerons, check, you know, all the different systems, check, 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 check before you can take off. Um, is this a, uh, can you make a one for one transfer of this? type of approach to medicine? Isn't that going to alleviate all our problems or is it uh, illusory? <laughs> well, it depends on the issue. So one thing about airplanes is that most of the moving parts are just moving parts. When it comes to medicine, a lot of the moving parts are human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, patients who have infinite variety and are allowed to present any way they want, and also the medical staff who think differently, speak differently, communicate differently. So, um, so there's checklist- not just a pilot and a co-pilot. There's like an entire team of you know people caring for the person. And most things in an airplane are buttons and dials that are quantifiable. There's a finite number of them. There may be a lot, but it's finite. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in medicine, there are infinite variables and infinite shades of gray and judgment calls. So the checklist breaks down pretty quickly when it comes to, you know, how we take care of a person in septic shock. We can have some checklists that help us, but a lot of it is thinking about the patient or or the presentation of that patient, many, many, many things. So it works for discrete things like putting in a central line. You know, here are the six steps you got to do or about to operate on your cataract. Mm -hmm. The checklist is very helpful. But one of the problems is that um, checklists seem to be great from an administrator's point of view, right? They're they're cheap. It's a piece of paper with five boxes. They're easy. You can force people to do it so you can get 100% compliance. So the hospitals began checklisting everything. You know, you checklist um, DVT prophylaxis, you checklist discharge planning, you mm-hmm. checklist advanced end of life care. Right. So now you have a thousand checklists and it kind of <laughs> dilutes the, the, because now you have so many, you can't yeah. even work. And what do people do? They just check right. the boxes and it can go away so they can actually get their yeah, work it, it, done. It gets annoying. I mean, it increases your workload and to the point where uh, I think a lot of people just race through these checklists like, no, 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 no. Well, boom. You know, like, let me get past this. I know what I'm doing. You know, our our uh, previous uh, EMR uh, version had a check uh, and a checklist for domestic violence screening. It's clearly a very important problem. Yeah. But it was a forced decision. You had to do it. Now, do I think every ophthalmologist asked about domestic violence? <laughs> I doubt it, yeah. but they had to check the box. And once yeah. you're forced to, then people, and they're not, I don't think they're really gaming the system intentionally, but you know, you can't have 67 of those and then have time to actually do your work. So it really dilutes the, the cost. So we have to use them judiciously. And I think that people who put the checklists in aren't the same as those who are on yeah. the ground using them. And I think it would be very, uh, uh, salutatory if the administrators would actually practice medicine in clinic for a day and see what it's like to have 16 checklists, then there's no time to actually think about diagnosis, forget communication, empathic support for your patient who's suffering, all the other things we want as part of our medical care. You know, that's the other thing you bring out in some of these cases is like, it's it's unclear lines of authority. Like uh, in the old days, uh, you know, your doctor who was the doctor in the office would go into the hospital 
and follow you in the hospital. And they would know you, you know, perhaps they'd known you since you were a child because that's the way medicine was practiced. You know, now you're 40 years old, but they might have even given birth to you uh, and they know you intimately. Then they go in the hospital and they supervise your care. Now there's a handoff and there's a handoff to a lot of specialists and sometimes unclear lines of authority. And who's really advocating for the patient sometimes? I mean, it gets lost, doesn't it? And that's where the communication issue comes up, because we do have more complex teams, and some of it makes sense. I think the old model of the outpatient doctor doing inpatient care as well is not sustainable now. I mean, inpatient medicine is so much more infinitely complex and around the clock. You have what are called intensivists, right? People who who just practice in hospital as... uh, Sure, hospitalists and intensivists. Right. right. And even outpatient medicine is so much more complex now. Patients are much sicker as outpatients that there's no possible way I can care for my inpatients while I'm caring for my, you know, hundreds and hundreds of sick outpatients. Right. So it makes sense to have, you know, this um, more sophisticated division of labor. But you're right. The problem is who's communicating and somebody has to kind of run the ship and take responsibility, not necessarily make every decision. And usually that should be like in a medical service, the, the general internist, you know, with consultations, but someone has to really take responsibility and take ownership. And, and one of the cases that I put in the book was exactly that where the patient had many fine consulting uh, specialists, but no single person said, this is my patient. I can't leave the house, the hospital until I've made sure all the loose ends are tied. And that lack of ownership was really the primary error in this patient's case because nobody said, all right, uh, you know, I'm taking responsibility. Okay, folks, at this point, let's pause and allow one of our sponsors an opportunity to share this message with you. Here it goes. As a listener to Intelligent Medicine, you know that fish oil provides the vital omega-3s, EPA, and DHA that support your cardiovascular, brain, nerve, vision, immune system, joint, and skin health, as well as your inflammatory balance. My preferred fish oil brand is Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including soft gels, liquid, and enteric-coated options in a variety of potencies. Vital Nutrients even offers a high-performance and nutrient-dense vegan omega supplement option. Vital Nutrients line of ultra-pure omega-3 solutions are held to the most rigorous quality standards in the industry, ensuring maximum freshness, purity, and potency. I use Vital Nutrients myself and recommend it to my patients. For more information and to order, call 888-328-9992. That's 888-328-9992. Or go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co for the Vital Nutrients line of Ultra Pure Omega-3 Solutions. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. And now back to today's guest, Dr. Danielle Ofri, author of When We Do Harm. You know, in the book, you point out that some simple measures like, you know, just good old-fashioned hygiene uh, could alleviate a lot of uh, the problems, uh, so-called nosocomial infections, you know, iatrogenic problems. And uh, you trace the history of uh, Ignaz Semmelweis in your book. Who's, can you share with our audience uh, who he was and what his innovation was and what unfortunately became of him? So Dr. Semmelweis in the 1800s was the chief resident of uh, the Vienna Public Hospital in charge of, of OBGYN. And there were two wards. Uh, you could get admitted on alternating days to the ward where the medical students trained or the ward where the midwives trained. And Dr. Semmelweis noticed that the um, 
mortality rate was much lower in the midwife's ward. In fact, it was so much lower that patients knew about it, and they begged and pleaded to, to <laughs> get admitted on the day that the, they go to the midwife. They did not want to go to the doctors. And he began trying to measure every difference between the two wards, you know, time This is like, day, what, in the 1850s weather, or something? 1850s, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, he really couldn't figure out any difference. And then uh, he realized that, um, that it was the medical students were coming from their autopsy rooms. And going right to the, you know, OBGYN suite. Oh, okay. So in the mornings they washing. had like dissection with right, as part anatomy. of the thing. And then it was like, okay, let's go to the to the maternity ward. You know, let's right. Right? let's have lunch and, and maybe go to the, the maternity this ward. Before the germ theory. Right. Um, but he he postured some kind of particles, cadaveric particles, which of course were bacteria. Um, and so he made everyone wash their hands in carbolic acid uh, beforehand, which is a dilute, you know, antiseptic, and of course the mortality rate dropped immediately. But so he came upon what is probably the single greatest public health intervention. But he was such a crank. Um, he was nasty to other people. He insulted other people. He wouldn't publish his data for a decade. So he was such a difficult individual that nobody wanted to buy his data. They just so he didn't have the it. finesse to to promote. I mean, it's not only do you have to be brilliant, but you have to have a little bit of uh, finesse to, <laughs> to actually to market your ideas. Generous. Right? You have to share your data. He wouldn't share the data. He spent a decade and a half preparing it for mm-hmm. publication. Yep. So many patients, you know, um, missed out on it. And he insulted and hectored all those who critiqued him. So he didn't make any, any friends. And then he, of course, ended up an insane asylum, probably dying of the same illness. He was uh, had a, a wound. He probably got septic shock just like those patients did, which is quite a tragic ending. And it took really a whole another generation until we figured out, you know, what the hand washing did. And of course, a generation more of people were dying because his, you know, innovation of hand washing did not get out there. Well, there's a lot of institutional inertia, and you know, you and I have been uh, up against it. It's like you know, that's the way it is. And, you know, we sometimes as uh, young uh, upcoming physicians, we might have ideas about how things could be done better. But um, there's not really a, a, ch- a channel for incorporating innovative new ideas in some cases. Well, I'll tell you what the channel is, though. It's yeah. a pandemic. So one thing that we yeah. discovered during the pandemic is all the things we said, we can never do this. Oh, all of a sudden we can. Yeah. Right? We can't do telephone visits. You can only bill for patients in person. And then boom, overnight, you can do yep. telephone visits. You know, yep. We can't have doctors work from home. No, no, no. Well, all of a sudden we can. And you know what? The house didn't fall down. So it, it's, it's so interesting, interesting you say that because I have a whole roster of patients tomorrow. And I said, shall I come into the office? And I said, no, it, it they're all they're all going to be uh, telemedicine, so you know I can you know uh, I don't even have to physically go into the office and run the gauntlet you know with the elevators and the masks and all that stuff, and and treat a bunch of patients, which is unprecedented. I, it never in my entire medical career, you know, thirty five plus years has this ever transpired. But But it shows that so many things they say, oh, we can never do it. Well, you know what? We can do a lot of things. You just have to do it. And and COVID pushed us against the wall, um, you know, in in a a manner no one would really wish upon ourselves voluntarily. But it's fascinating that the sclerotic administration billing system can, if forced to change, it's actually doable. And I think that's given us some power that if we see other things that are ridiculous, we can do those also. I mean, why not? Well, I think it's also increased uh, the pace of uh, innovation because, as was illustrated with uh, President Trump's care, 
they were very quickly able to mobilize uh, some therapies that ordinarily would take years uh, to test and achieve approval. I mean, it's, there may be some downsides to that because some of these things may be, you know, uh, prematurely uh, adopted. But, you know, at a record pace of innovation, uh, I think spawned by the yeah, crisis. I think it, it changed it changed the thinking. And what I also found during COVID was the direct communication between researchers and clinicians and clinicians mm-hmm. and clinicians. You know, I never really found social media to be that interesting. But suddenly, for the first time, I actually found it useful. On Twitter, people were sharing tips and, you know, the whole yep. proning you know, came through on Twitter. And that was a fascinating Thing that hadn't happened mm-hmm. before, really direct communication all over the world, people talking from Italy and their experience and on the West Coast. And it, it was, uh, you know, not everything was peer reviewed. So we d- certainly learned there were some problems there, but it mm-hmm. showed that we can have real time discussion about clinical advances. Well, you know, so some simple things uh, like uh, the use of dexamethasone in patients with COVID-19. I mean, ordinarily, you don't take patients with uh, viral diseases and put them on dexamethasone, which is a steroid. But it turns out that there are advantages to doing that. And another one, and this is kind of out of left field, the use of famotidine, which is Pepsid. You know, it's an over-the-counter thing, Pepsid AC. You can go to, you know, the Dwayne Reed drugstore, uh, you know, and get uh, <laughs> you know, Pepsid over-the-counter. Um, who knew that there might be some survival advantage in patients given that? It's very interesting. And it's been rapidly adopted by many doctors. Right. But we've also learned, you know, on the flip side, you know, hydroxychloroquine, in the beginning, we gave that to everyone. Yeah. And even and dexamethasone, you know, really only for severe patients and not for, you know, mild cases. And the same with remdesivir. It really only was beneficial in patients who were being ventilated. Right. So we're extrapolating a little bit. We're saying, uh, yeah, his case is not so bad, but hey, he's the POTUS. So we're going to like throw every conceivable yeah. therapy at him and, you know, cross our fingers and toes. Well, it's concerning it because all of those things have, you know, enormous side effects. You know, steroids not to be used lightly and yeah. remdesivir not to be used lightly. So we shall see. Yeah. Well, uh, he's feeling good, but, you know, Generally, you feel a little bit of a boost when you take some dexamethasone. Yeah. <laughs> so day as, six through ten is still still to come. Yeah, as of as of this uh, podcast, uh, all right. So, um, what about uh, uh, artificial intelligence? You know, uh, you know, we'll talk about that in part two because, uh, as you folks know, we divide our podcast into two parts. Uh, you know, we've got a revolution in uh, computing. And we have machine learning, artificial intelligence, uh, already uh, radiologists and uh, even some uh, uh, eye doctors are looking at eye images using uh, artificial intelligence. Computers are helping them make the diagnosis. Is that uh, something that's going to help doctors in the future avoid medical errors? We'll tackle that question with today's guest, Dr. Danielle Ofri, uh, author of a great new book. I recommend it very highly. It reads, uh, you know, like... Um, uh, a work of a very fascinating nonfiction, uh, when we do harm, and that's taken from the Hippocratic Oath, right, uh, Danielle? You know, uh, the first thing you remember about the Hippocratic Oath is uh, do no harm. That is true. Okay, so the book is When We Do Harm, just out. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. <laughs> 